welcome to episode 23 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Robert Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. And Bobby, the NBA season is over, and I don't know what to do with myself. Well, you should be celebrating the success of Texas X, Kevin Durant, who had a you know pretty magnificent uh, journey to his first title. So, so we're off Kawhi, and now we're on to Kevin Durant. I'm happy to return to Kawhi as soon as they get back into the finals. <laughs> it could be, or a while. at least until preseason gets. I was going to say, if we're waiting for the NBA finals, Bob, you could be waiting a long time. Oh boy, um, I think the off season for the NBA is going to be fascinating. Not to digress too much, but uh, you know, my my dream is that Chris Paul comes to San Antonio, but they've got some salary cap issues. They need they need old Pau Gasol not to, to pick up his option. I'm just shaking my head over here. Yeah, you're not um, seeing that happening. I'm I'm, I'm just switch, switching to baseball mode, where the only thing I can say about the Mets is if they Ooh. somehow win tonight and tomorrow, they'll have a better record than the Cubs. Hey, you know, there's some pitching hope. Steven Matz is back. He looked good the other day. <laughs> and and the worst part is, it's not just that the Mets are underachieving and having a terrible year. It's that the Nationals look, other than their bullpen, pretty unstoppable. And so, of course, we have to deal with all these insufferable Nationals fans. You know, you could focus on the Astros. They're sure looking good. The Astros. The Astros, your home state team, along with the Rangers, who are starting to look better. I'm not a homer. I'm I, I'm, a, I'm a true fan. <laughs> you, you come learn the life of the homer. I can show you the ways. All right, well, with all that said, so, Bobby, here we are, Tuesday, June 13th, special Peter Beardsley birthday edition. You know, uh, we should make clear to the listeners, like, we are not watching right now the Sessions <laughs> testimony. So so it's possible that we're being preempted literally as we speak. It could be that we should just be watching this and doing sort of a mystery science th- theater 3000 kind of running <laughs> commentary. <laughs> Although without the video, I'm not sure how well that would work. Yeah, no. I, you know, we've already lost most of our listeners. That would be really cool, though. If, like, there was some big, big deal national security hearing and we somehow came up with technology to live audio stream commentary. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it can be done. And uh, it, I have a feeling that within it can't be more than a few months away before we have some suitable occasion. I just so, don't think Sessions is it. So, so Bobby, I want to take one moment before we turn to the actual substance of today's podcast to say a quick word about the British elections from last week. Mm, yeah, um, that didn't go so well for the for the Tories. I, so I have to say, like, I, I, am, I am an Anglophile in virtually every way that matters. I love the Brits. I love England. I love London. I love everything about it. Um, and there was nothing quite like, after all the chaos of Washington last week, sitting down Thursday night, late, you know, when I just couldn't think about Comey or Russia anymore, and turning on the BBC and watching the BBC commentators in their BBC commentary best yes. first try to pronounce all of the bizarre constituencies from Wales, um, <laughs> right? But then also like revel without with unadorned glee at the at the sort of you know gambit the failed gambit of Theresa May. Well, it is. It, there's a lot of Schadenfreude out there, no doubt about it. Um, Schadenfreude's like the word of 2017. Oh, there are a lot of words for 2017. <laughs> Not all of them we can say on this family friendly podcast. I will say just just to kind of go down the road of how does this possibly relate to things we should be talking Indeed. about. I do think when you look at the success that, that Corbin had um, and the, in the uh, array of votes, it you begin to see that they've got so much the same problem we've got, where what you, what you have is a, a lot of strength and momentum on the wings, and, and the center looks weak. Yep. At least that's how it looks to me, and yep. I feel like that's the story of our own politics right now, and as a, as a pretty centrist kind of person, it, it upsets me. Yeah, um, what the the days of principled moderation seem to be in I, the I'm, past. I am ready to fight the fight to bring that back. <laughs> uh, let's try to demonstrate that by being 
uh, or I'll try to demonstrate it at least, uh, invite you to join me. Uh, <laughs> what are you implying? No, I'm kidding. I'm t- I tease. Are you, though? I tease. Are I don't you know. Though? Yeah, deep down. Uh, We've got a bunch of interesting things. So first of all, we've got we're going to open with a story that is that is not a, a Trump story, at least not in the first order. Maybe at the second order, it's a story about two Hezbollah agents who've been arrested inside the United States. And we're going to talk a little bit about criminal prosecution and, and context for that. Um, then Steve, uh, what comes up after that? So we've got uh, updates on the the travel ban litigation, um, including some some breaking news as we sit down to record this podcast. Filings coming in fast and furious in the Supreme Court. The Ninth Circuit obviously handing down its decision uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, we're going to pivot from there, Bobby, You know, because there's there's such an easy segue. I, I guess Somalia is one of the countries on the travel ban it list. It is. No, I think I think it is a natural segue. So, Speaking so, of places so, you're, you're banned from coming from, Somalia. Well, except you're not, because there are two nationwide <laughs> injunctions. Right, that's right. And, uh, and things are happening in Somalia. There's been a, a recent strike <laughs> is that is that the tourism logo? Things, things are happening. happening in Somalia. Oh, my God. That is great. Um, New Hampshire. It's what's new. <laughs> That's, oh, that, that, that's a West Wing reference for everybody. Oh, Winston-Salem. When I, when I lived in Winston-Salem, when I used to teach at Wake Forest, they, they paid somebody in some advertising agency to coin a, a city slogan, and it was O, period, like the letter O, period. Oh, Winston-Salem. And I thought, well, that was the best is, that even, is that even meant to have a good connotation? It's like, it's like oh, oh, Winston. Oh, Winston. But you know, it was a great place. They didn't need a slogan. All right, so, so lots we'll of things about, happening in yeah. Somalia. And then uh, we'll, we'll pivot over to some legislative developments. There's a what I think is a very interesting bill that the House Armed Services Committee dropped uh, last week about uh, notification to Congress of uh, military cyber operations of a certain kind. Mm. So we'll talk about that a little bit and what its prospects are. And then speaking of cyber operations, Bobby. <laughs> Another natural segue. We would be remiss. Who, who writes this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Look what happens when we spend more than 25 seconds planning the, planning the episode. Um, and then we'd be remiss, obviously, in not talking at least a little bit about, oh, I don't know, uh, Comey's testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Oh, did he testify? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Why he didn't break the law by, you know, giving a memo to Dan Richmond. Yeah, I think we see eye to eye on that one. Um, why executive privilege has nothing to do with what Comey said or did. Um, and then the sort of, Bobby, the, the trial balloon that's being increasingly floated by certain uh, defenders and supporters of the president, that the time has come to fire Bob Mueller. Oh, boy. Yeah, we'll wrap up with that. And then if, <laughs> if time permits, we'll get to some trivialities. Triviality, because ugh, it's, this is all way too serious. All right, then. Well, let's jump in with something that is certainly quite serious, the, uh, the arrest uh, inside the United States of two Hezbollah agents. Um, these guys ha- are not the first Hezbollah uh, members or agents or supporters who've ever been arrested by federal agents and been prosecuted. And they're not the first ones specifically to be charged with violations of the material support statute or the the panoply of statutes that are akin to it, like our our favorite, Steve, AIPA, the (laughs) International (laughs) Emergency Economic Powers Act, which is the the basis for uh, material support type or embargo style sanctions on designated foreign groups as well, and certainly includes Hezbollah. Um, so what makes it worth mentioning this one? Because after all, IEPA and material support cases get brought all the time. Um, and, if, and if it's not novel to occasionally apply them, not just to the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, but to apply them to Hezbollah as well, then again, what makes this interesting? Here's what I think makes it interesting. Uh, when you talk about people being charged with material support violations, Steve, it, it sounds like you're, you're talking about someone who's 
helping to make someone else dangerous, but maybe they themselves aren't the dangerous person, right? They're, they're somebody who's writing a check for uh, you know, the Islamic State, or they're sending- A little old lady in Switzerland exactly. giving money to an Islamic charity. It's got, it's got this uh, primary connotation of the, the sort of the third party providing things to them. But of course, it's always been the case that uh, the support type charge is extremely useful. What you actually have is a member of the group who may even indeed be something in the nature of an operative of the group. And in that case, it's all well and good if you can charge them with one some specific plot or activity that they engaged in. But it may be that the only available Al Capone-style charge, <laughs> uh, in addition to you know false statement to the FBI or a visa uh, fraud issue, it may simply be that you can show pretty easily that they've given some support right. to the group. Right. So uh, occasionally in the large set of cases under material support, you get cases that are actually best understood as material support, yes, but this is about incapacitating a potentially dangerous person in and of, or in his own right, if you will. Uh, and I think just drawing on what's in the uh, the criminal complaint and the associated affidavit uh, that uh, justified the arrest from the FBI, uh, this is a description of two people whom the government, at least is alleging, are in that potentially dangerous, directly harmful category. And the fact that the charges being used are support-style charges and by the way, they include uh, one of my favorite, most fascinating charges you don't see charged very often, receiving military-type training from the tr- a— The, the 2339C charge. It's, it's the mirror image of support. I mean, early on, before that charge existed, you occasionally had cases where guys had gone abroad, or, or in any event, had gone to a, a terrorist organization's training facility— and, and the government was trying to show that you could charge material support in such cases. But the weird thing was, really, the group had supported them. The group had given them the aid. It wasn't vice versa. They were there getting stuff, not giving stuff. Sometimes the government was still able to charge that on a personnel theory. But eventually, Congress figured out that there really ought to be a standalone offense if you want to make criminal that type of activity. So these guys had trained with Hezbollah, allegedly, had conducted uh, site-specific surveillance for targets uh, in the United States and in Panama, allegedly, on behalf of Hezbollah. And they don't come across like prior Hezbollah right. defendants in material support cases. That's, such what, as, that's what stood out to me. Yeah, exactly. So I think that um, this is a meaningful intervention against people who, if it's true, may well be significant uh, figures for Hezbollah in their external operations. It's also notable some of the verbiage that the, the DOJ used in describing describing who they were. Uh, the description of them is not that they were external operatives for Hezbollah as such, but specifically they were uh, part of the Islamic Jihad organization, IJO. Now, this is interesting, and I, I may just not not, not... not to be confused with ICO from the you know House of Cards. <laughs> no, definitely not. No, IJO... Um, early on, for those who really know their their uh, Hezbollah history, of course, IJO was originally at least a standalone organization or an affiliated but distinct organization headed by Imad Mugnaya, uh, infamous uh, operational terrorist associated with a lot of attacks against the United States. Um, according to something that the media reported, Israel and the United States teamed up to to kill him some uh, few years ago. In any event, IJO had become part of Hezbollah, had gotten folded in, and had become its external operations arm. Um, I was under the impression, at least, that it's really no longer referred to that way. 
And, and if that's right, then seeing the government consciously framing this as, as an arrest of IJO agents shows you that the mindset is very much like, look, this is, this is a continuation of our longest running war on terrorism, which is the conflict between the United States and Hezbollah and its affiliates going back to the early 80s, including the Marine barracks bombing. And of course, you also have to put it in context with the uh, mounting tensions between the United States and Iran, uh, tensions that you're seeing expressed on the battlefield in Syria uh, through strikes on Iranian proxies. And you're hearing a lot about in the context of uh, Saudi and UAE tensions and uh, the, the pressures being placed on Qatar as well. So with that, uh, listeners, you know, stay tuned, see if you see anything further on the Hezbollah account. But I'll just say, Bobby, I mean, it, it strikes me that, well, it's hard to compete for headlines in the current climate, right? You just can't. Um, but it strikes me that the headline here is that this isn't a headline, right? That yep. that that even the Trump administration, with all of its you know pledges to reinvigorate Guantanamo, to you know reverse some of the policy shifts in this field that we saw during the Obama administration, along comes a somewhat unique fact pattern, and they just go right to twenty three thirty nine B and C, right? That this is sort of you know par for the course and has been for really the better part of 15 years when it comes to individuals arrested within the United States. Certainly so. I mean, when you have people arrested in the United States, we've, we've had you know, just a couple of instances post 9-11 where military detention was used. And none, and none of anyone who's been picked up since 03. And, and no one ever taken out of the United States to be put from the United States into Guantanamo or other overseas U.S. military detention. Not, not U.S. detention, no. No, no. You've, had, you've got the, the one wrinkle there, I'm sure you're thinking of this too, is rendition. Yes. Although that was not, a, you know, there you've got someone, I'm thinking of Mahara Rar, very briefly grabbed the United States and quickly shipped off. You certainly haven't had anyone in any kind of uh, Bureau of Prisons or U.S. Marshal custody who then gets sent outside the United States from the United States. Um, okay, we'll fight about that another time. Okay, I'll be curious if there's a counterexample. <laughs> I, just, I, I think that there are, there are examples of individuals being in some kind of U.S. law enforcement custody, whether here or overseas. Well, if you had overseas, that's different from what I'm talking about. I understand, but, but I'm not sure. I, it's factually different. I'm not sure it's legally different. Um, but as I said, another time. Right. right. No, but I take your point that this just shows you the, the continuity over time for all the, the talk that, unfortunately, for many years now, we've had a lot of disparagement of the uh, efficacy or utility of federal criminal law enforcement as a counterterrorism tool. The reality beneath the, the rhetoric is that administrations of both parties for three presidencies now, or three, three different presidents now across right. you know, the fifth presidency of this period, right. all use it. And, without and under, with, and, without fanfare. And for very good reason. Yep. All right. So um, switching from things that all presidents do to things that <laughs> this president seems uniquely interested in, Bobby, we had uh, obviously some big developments on the travel ban. Yes. So uh, the, yes, ninth circuit, the Ninth Circuit strikes. The Ninth Circuit strikes. What have they done? Um, oh, what have they done? Well, so, so yesterday was already, Bobby, going to be a big day because yesterday is the deadline the Supreme Court had set for the uh, challengers to the ban, the plaintiffs below, um, to basically file their opposition to the government's three filings in the Supreme Court, the two stay applications and the cert petition vis-a-vis the Fourth Circuit. And in the middle of those filings, Bobby, the Ninth Circuit jumps into the fray. Um, I have to say, I am not at all surprised by this timing. Yep. You might you might even find, if you go back and look at my Twitter account, that I predicted that they this were not going to miss the chance to have their, have their peace. Well, indeed, as we t- talked about briefly last week, right, that the government, I think, actually made a strategic error in how they timed their appeal to the Supreme Court exactly in a way that would give the Ninth Circuit a chance to do precisely what it did yesterday. Assume an error, I agree with the characterization, but whether it's an error or 
perfectly fine with them. Kind of depends on what it is they're trying to maximize. Well, so let's talk about what the Ninth Circuit did, right? Yep. So the Ninth Circuit, to me, Bobby, did um, three things that are very important. Um, so the headline, obviously, is that they affirmed in principal part the nationwide injunction issued by some federal judge on an island in the Pacific, um, right? That was Attorney General Sessions' quote about the district yes, judge in Hawaii. Yes, yes. Um, oh, by the way, is there any member from Hawaii who will be on the panel today? Oh, I don't think so. That would be fun. <laughs> I'm a senator from multiple islands in the Pacific. <laughs> I represent a bunch of them. Indeed. All right. Um, so so the, the first thing that the Ninth Circuit did, Bobby, that I think is really important, um, is unlike the Fourth Circuit, the en banc court of which ruled 10 to 3 to affirm the Maryland injunction on constitutional grounds, the Ninth Circuit relied on the statutes. Um, and the Ninth Circuit actually spent about 80 pages explaining in detail why it believed that President Trump had actually exceeded his statutory authority over immigration without going within a mile of the messier, thornier, more controversial Establishment Clause questions. Yeah, I was a little surprised by that, and I thought it was fascinating. I mean, do you think that if there hadn't already been a constitutional ruling, they might have been more inclined to go down that road? Was this a way of saying, like, all right, hmm, those guys stole our thunder there. Let's do something different and make us relevant. I actually think this is how the case was litigated by Hawaii. Um, So Neil Katyal's counsel for Hawaii, and I think Neil, I, I think it's related. I think Neil understood um, that the Establishment Clause issue was going to probably be ahead of him in the Fourth yeah. Circuit. Yeah. Um, and this, the, what, what's alluring, Bobby, about the statutory argument is, is twofold, right? First, obviously, courts are always going to try to avoid deciding unnecessary constitutional questions, right. especially ones that are so novel and important as, as this one is. Except when they don't want to. But, right. Yeah. But, and second, I think there's no question that the statutory argument is a much more case-specific holding here mm-hmm. um, that would set far less of a precedent yeah. going forward to constrain this or future presidents acting in circumstances where their motives were less suspect. So this basis for ruling might seem a little less radioactive and therefore a little more attractive to justices who might feel reluctant to bite off more than they intend to. So right. So I know that the media coverage gravitates toward how this would appeal to Justice Kennedy, Chief Justice Roberts. Mm -hmm. I would also say, I mean, I think this kind of analysis is going to really appeal to Justices Breyer and Kagan, who might have been sympathetic to the plaintiffs on the constitutional claim, but now don't even have to go there. Right. Would would prefer not to touch something that would have much broader implications for issues and statutory questions that are not before the court. All right. So the first part was that it was statutory. The second part was that it's therefore narrower and provides a compromised Mm -hmm. verdict. the third, Bobby, is unlike the Fourth Circuit, which had a bunch of different opinions yeah. and a lot of heated rhetoric. Um, this was a very technical, unsigned, per curiam. per curiam decision with no separate opinions. Now, I know some folks are going to say, oh, well, it's the Ninth Circuit. They're all crazy yeah. liberals. Like-minded liberals. Yeah, those crazy More people. liberal orthodoxy. So I will say, I mean, yes, all three members of the panel are Democratic appointees. But, I mean, having clerked on the Ninth Circuit, I don't think anyone would look at someone like Ronald Gould. Um, right, one of the judges on the panel, as a liberal. Um, right, Gould is sort of the quintessential uber-centrist Clinton appointee um, who actually more often than not sides with the government mm. in law enforcement and immigration mm, Centrism. Oh, right, it's principled centrism. <laughs> there you um, go. I knew we could work that in. But, but I, I think this is all a bit – all three of these pieces to me, Bobby, fit together because this is all happening while the Supreme Court is trying to figure out what to do. And along comes the Ninth Circuit. Oh, and I missed the most important part. 
And the one place where the government wins in the Ninth Circuit is the Ninth Circuit narrows the part of the Hawaii injunction that the government had claimed was preventing it from undertaking all of the review procedures, right. which was by which, far the lowest hanging fruit. And that seems like in the, in the past few days, insofar as the, the executive branch has been trying to get narrative out there, that was the thing that they were right. leading Our hands with. have been tied. We can't right. even do this review. Right. Now, of course, that, that begs the comment that, well, wait, why? this has been going on now for a while. Have you not been doing the review this whole time? Well, and this is, so this you is- You don't the, need the state to do the darn review. Well, so this is the thing that I find so odd. So the executive order, Bobby, actually expires tomorrow. Right. right. So what is the point of all this? So, so the Supreme Court now has a really, really weird set of choices to make. Yeah. Um, it has two stay applications, right? It has a cert petition vis-a-vis -vis the Fourth Circuit. Of course, it has the authority to treat the stay application from Hawaii as tantamount to a cert petition mm -hmm. in the yep. Ninth Circuit. Okay. Um, so now the question for the Supreme Court is, what do you do? Well, is this not? Tell me, tell me why this isn't moot. So. I, is it as simple first as of all, first capable of, all, of repetition? So first of all, it's not moot today, right? <laughs> if it's, if it's, I'm assuming a listener tomorrow <laughs> is hearing this. So, so why does it not become moot at midnight tomorrow night? Um, so I think that the best argument is that it's a paradigmatic example of a government policy that's capable of repetition yet evading review. Yeah. Um, that there's every reason to believe that this president especially would be inclined to reenact the executive order the moment he can, um, right, on a more permanent basis. Is there a procedural vehicle that could have been that could be used to say, looks moot for now, but we in some it, what would it look like if the justices want to be able to have it spring back into life? the moment there's a, a, a suitable further action by the executive branch to revive this? Yeah, and it's an interesting question. So, so the, I mean, let's, talk, let's walk quickly through what the Supreme Court's options are at this point, right? So if the court believes that the challenges are really moot, um, and Bobby, as, as I just said, I mean, there are ways that they could say they're not. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like the stays are therefore also moot, right? And the, and the cert petition is moot. And so then the question is just, do you deny, deny, right? Deny the stays and deny the cert mm -hmm. petition, or do you issue every federal court nerd's favorite order, a Munsingware order, mm. um, which is when the Supreme Court vacates the decision below. Um, Munsingware, by the way, sounds like some sort of 1970s leisure suit. So it's actually, and I think it was a, it was the, the, it was a corporate defendant to a 1950s civil suit by the United States. Nice. And, and, and a Munsingware order is basically when um, matters become mooted, right? on appeal um, so that the prevailing party can't take advantage of mootness um, as a way of basically avoiding Supreme Court review. And so what the Supreme Court will do is it will grant certiorari, it will vacate the decision below, and it will remand with instructions to dismiss. Um, and if that were to happen, then you'd have a scenario where the Supreme Court would wipe the Fourth and Ninth Circuit opinions off the books. But, yeah. right, but on the understanding that the executive order is no longer in force, right, that the, that the litigation had done its job by preventing the executive order from ever going into effect. So my instinct is that I'm thinking they're not going to want to do that because they're not going to wipe that, want to have the, uh, it, restoring this, the, the playing field in the way you just described right. seems to be a great win for the executive branch given how it's gone so far for them. Maybe, although although if the executive order never, I mean, if the, if someone from the ACLU were here or if Neil was here, um, Neil, you're welcome anytime, right? Um, I think we, they would say, well, listen, if at the end of the day the executive order is wiped off the books, we don't care what mechanism wipes it off the books. Right, no, but then a month later, then they they issue executive order travel ban three. Well, that's the problem. Right. So, so, what, and then, so, then so who wins 
in this scenario depends upon facts not yet in evidence, right, about what happens afterwards. So, so that's why I actually think the mootness scenario is not entirely likely. Yeah. The two other scenarios that strike me as likely are, first, the most likely scenario, I think, is they deny the stays, but they grant cert. Um, right. I mean, just mm -hmm. to be clear, the government has asked the Supreme Court for yeah. certiorari in eight national security cases since 9-11. They're eight for eight. I know, but that N is so small. A, a set of N. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of I, think, I think when the government comes to the anyway, – but, okay. yeah. but so, so denying this day to say, listen, we're not buying this whole urgency argument. Like you're moving yeah. pretty slowly if this yeah, is super there's urgent. No, there's no, no apparent urgency. But we'll hear it in the fall. And then let's see what happens between now and then. If it's going to become moot, guess what? After we grant cert, we can always say, oh, never mind. Now yeah. it's moot. Or is it going to be reissued, right? Like that gives the, that gives the facts time to yeah. sort of – take their course. Now, the underlying executive order, as, as we just noted, is is kaput tomorrow, no matter what. So there's going to, if they want to keep pushing this, there's going to have to eventually be another executive order. Well, or at least DOJ is going to have to argue that it's not, right? I mean, so DOJ could argue that the it's effective told. date language of the executive order right. has been told. It's now, told. Um, your friend and mine, Marty Lederman, has a series of blog posts on take care and just security that I think do a pretty good job of explaining why that argument is belied by the plain text of the executive yeah, order. Yeah, I, I think I tend to agree with that. But, you know, I mean, we'll see what DOJ says. Yeah. I mean, so so the, the breaking news that's been happening today, Bobby, is after and in light of the Ninth Circuit decision, there's now some maneuvering by the parties in the Supreme Court about whether there should be even more briefs um, filed before the Supreme Court acts. So, so scenario number one is the mootness option. Scenario number two, deny the stay, but grant certain, have argument in the fall, yep. and figure out what the hell happens between now and then. Bobby, scenario number three is getting more and more discussion among the Supreme Court press corps, which is um, to pull a dames and more. Ooh. Right? I, but, now you got my attention. Um, so Dames and Moore is the Iranian hostage agreement case, right, from 1981. Um, Bobby, our, our listeners may not know, Dames and Moore is sort of the, the post-Youngstown, like, important executive power case. Mm -hmm. And as relevant here, it's a case the court heard on an incredibly truncated, expedited schedule right at the end of its 1980-81 term. Interesting. So most of us teach Dames and Moore. We talk about how it, it goes to the president's power to override certain property interests. It's an, a really interesting concept contrast with Youngstown Sheet and Tube. Um, but it has a procedural about, story. Yeah, tell us about the Civ Pro side of this, or the Fed Court side. It's, oh, it's Fed Courts. Come yeah, on now. Fed, yeah, whatever. Um, tomato, tomato. So, so the Supreme Court actually heard Dames and Moore at the very, very end of its 1980-81 term. And it actually had a special late-term argument it had it issued a decision July second, which is very late for the yeah, Supreme Court, late. and it was super. It was a super quick time from the argument to the decision. Um, Lyle Denniston actually has a great blog post about this if folks are interested in the backstory. Huh. Um, and it's really Bobby, other than Bush versus Gore, which I think was sui generis in all kinds of respects. Dames and Moore was the last time the court had this like end of term important case. And the, the, the sort of cute little footnote is then Justice, later Chief Justice Rehnquist, was the real driving force behind what happened to James and Moore. And his law clerk that term, John Roberts, Chief Justice of the United States. Oh. Um, so, so that's where this whole, you know, the Supreme Court press court's like, hey, this would be like so historically cute. It's, it's all ordained by the social network. And so the theory, right. So the theory is that the court would just say, you know what, F forget the stays, right? Let's just settle this now, right? Yeah. Let's have our argument next week. Um, now, I find this very hard to believe for two reasons. First, this case is so factually different yeah. from Dames and oh, Moore, yeah. where the you had an incredibly important international agreement to yep. release 
77 American hostages, right? On which all everything hung in the balance. Really turned on this. Tons of money, right? Tons of uh, geostrategic uh, power balancing. The liberty of these hostages. Whereas here. Though we can't all stop staring at it, at a certain level, this is all about narrative optics and politics. Right. And if it was really about urgency, why did the Justice Department wait two weeks to seek a stay? Why are they not seeking expedited argument? So, 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 strike me as someone who thinks this is a fun story, but you know, for yeah. it to happen, I mean, Justice Kennedy is supposed to be teaching in Austria on July third. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to rule. I'm not going to bet against uh, him going to Salzburg. Right. So are we really supposed to believe that sometime between like the end of next week and June 3rd, the court is going to have briefing on the merits, oral argument and a decision? Yeah, I'm persuaded. So if I had to bet now, I'd say they, they go ahead and try to resolve it, but they take their time doing it. I think that's Option right. So, so deny the stay, grant cert yep. and, you know, see where we are in September. Yep. Yep. And knowing that they could always uh, dismisses and prov- I mean, providently grant it if they need to. That option appeals to me because it is the least disruptive yep. of the status quo. And you do have the dig option, dismiss it. And, and you don't, and you're not, you're not, you're not tilting, right? You're not tilting the scales dramatically in any one direction by going that route. It also has the virtue of putting the executive branch on notice that, in fact, the court will engage on this. This isn't going to go away. But maybe we don't buy the urgency argument quite yeah, exactly. so much. Exactly. Okay. So, all right. So, anyway, but, you know, probably by the time we have our next episode, there will be even more developments on this. No doubt. And God help us if there is an emergency oral argument session and I have to eat some crow. <laughs> well, look, if, if the good people in Salzburg need a uh, replacement teacher, you and I can volunteer to go. Totally. Cover for Kennedy. Dude, I'll actually already be in Europe. Oh, you know, I'm planning to be there at one point this summer myself. Why, why, hello? All right. Um, So, uh, to all of our Austrian listeners. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Good morning. Good morning. All right. So, so, uh, a little south of Austria, Bobby. We come to Somalia. <laughs> All right. Nice. Nice. That's, that's I had I'm... nothing else. I mean, the executive order segue would have made sense, but we were so far past I... the six countries on the list. Well, so this is a good segue. Um, so what what is going on in Somalia? This will be brief. I think it's important to flag amidst all the focus on uh, things like Comey and the Trump order, uh, executive order on travel. Um, there are still things going on as they have been for the past, oh, these many years in the nature of the conflict with the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, uh, which, as, as we often have noted, uh, includes these days al-Shabaab to an extent that wasn't the case previously. And here's what we mean by that. Uh, during the Obama years, uh, part of the policy framework the Obama administration adopted was to, one, accept that there's an armed conflict armed conflict with al-Qaeda and its associated forces to accept that that conflict is global in nature. That is, it's not an armed conflict only in certain geographic locations. It's an armed conflict governed by the law of armed conflict, wherever. Uh, But three, overlaying as a matter of policy discretion, the idea that some geographic locations will be categorized by the U.S. government as zones of active, areas of active hostilities or active combat operations, however you want to call it, um, and in those places, yeah, we will act in and comport our military operations in a way that you would if it was just a regular war zone. But where we run into al-Qaeda or Islamic State or associated forces thereof and want to use military authorities outside of a designated area of active hostilities, um, we would have much more constraint as a matter of policy discretion. And part of the idea here was was to sort of get to a practical, you might say, overlapping consensus with critics who say that those places aren't even governed by the law of armed conflict, right. um, to say, look, okay, we're going to get there as a matter of policy, so let's quit fighting. It, we get to the same place. Um, whether that 
constraint as a matter of policy really had much bite for operations that related to Somalia was never all that clear. During the Obama years, Somalia was considered not to be an area of active hostilities, but we were using some pretty significant force there from time to time, uh, said to be consistent with the policy constraints. And the, the, the basic idea is this is to uh, head off imminent attacks that threaten American lives. Uh, but we seem to have a pretty extended idea of imminence, as, as we often do. Um, it was not clear how much bite there really was. In any event, the Trump administration a little while back, as we previously noted, Steve, uh, decided to change that geographic designation and to make Somalia an area of active hostilities, which, which has the policy effect of taking it out of that con supposedly constraining policy framework. And the reason we're talking about all this now is that just the other day, there was a fairly cryptic release by DOD announcing that there had been a strike pursuant to this policy. And it was specific. It said, you know, pursuant to the president's determination on this point, we have now used force apparently in defense of not all that well specified allies on the ground. That's either African Union forces or maybe uh, the Mogadishu government forces. But it presumably was an airstrike we conducted where our forces weren't directly threatened, but our allied forces were. Mm. Um, I'm not saying there's anything right or wrong with this. I'm just flagging for listeners that there, you know, there something is now taking place that is apparently a consequence of that policy uh, change, and we need to keep an eye on that space. Um, I think that's probably about all we have to say about it now. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, it just I, I am I am constantly amazed. I mean, I guess I guess in a week where the Senate may be voting on a monumentally important health care bill that no one has seen, I guess I shouldn't be surprised at how little public discussion there is about AUMFs and about. Oh this, yeah, right. But but it's it, Bobby. I, I just I, I can't f understand the sort of diffusion of accountability when it comes to military force, right? That, that it strikes me that the most important and momentous thing that the legislature does in our names is send our men and women off to die overseas in defense of the country, right? And there's so little attention paid today to the circumstances in which we're doing it. Well, you know, for all of our lives, it's the executive branch doing the sending and the, and the Congress coming in to either complain or to claim some supporting role and on here the it's back sort of, And here it's sort of neither, right? Congress is just sort of acquiescing in one branch, you know, whatever. And and this is not about Trump. I mean, again, this is not about Trump, right? This is about, to me, a breakdown in institutional separation of powers that, you know, it's not going to be that long, Bobby, until there are soldiers who are killed in operations under the AUMF who weren't alive on 9-11. It's not going to be that long before members, you know, Congress is almost exclusively people who didn't vote for the original AUMF. I mean, you know, that it's all that to me, I, I agree with the general principle that you're gesturing towards. I don't actually see there, there being any inherent time decay factor that makes it somehow illegitimate at a certain point, as long as the uses of force are actually still plausibly connected but, but to But mine's not a legal argument. Mine is, yeah. a, mine is a sort of moral and political argument that, that, you know, of all of the breakdowns in Congress's institutional authority and autonomy in recent years, it, the breakdown needs to be the war powers is, I think, the one that bothers me the most. I just think it's an older breakdown than that. I think yeah. it's a, a, a well, longstanding— we, we could fight over just when the breakdown started. Yeah, but, but you're not going to get a disagreement that Congress but, is not stepping up. What's funny is, um, you know, if you ask members, do you, do you support this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, we, would you like to vote in favor of it? Well, yeah, you know— I mean, voting. Well, and, and the problem is, and let's be fair, once you decide that there's going to be a legislative action, then people start wanting to hang their ornaments on that right. little vehicle, and that's where it really breaks well, down. Well, and also— and, and these and it becomes partisan, right? When, when, when in fact these issues are not partisan. Well, yeah, it'd be nice if they weren't. 
Well, I how about this? Or, or at least they're not they're not they're not only partisan. Yeah, I, so I completely agree that that partisanship is is part of the general. We could kind of take that as a given. Any topic should Congress do this? Should it not do that? Partisanship is ruining this. Totally, totally agreed. I, I do think that there are policy problems, though. So, for example, why didn't the Obama administration and the Congress at the time uh, collaborate to produce a new AMF that at least was specific to the Islamic State? Everyone seemed totally in favor of using force for the yep, most part. Totally. Uh, and the answer was there were some who were, will- who were eager to do it, but they wanted certain changes that had real policy consequences, and not everyone wanted those. They wanted others. And, and there was not enough pressure being exerted by the status quo because everyone was acquiescing in it. Well, right. As, as many people pointed out at the time, if it's all just ultimately academic, then a lot of people don't care, right? Yeah. Okay, so speaking on to our next that, topic. Yeah, speaking right. of things people don't care about. Oh, no, I was going to say speaking of Congress. Speaking of Congress, okay, let's stay with Congress and let's talk about an area where Congress is trying to play a constructive and active role. Um, we've seen this particular move before. I'm talking here about the Armed Services Committees in the House and Senate um, using the usually the vehicle of the uh, always enacted National Defense Authorization Act to, uh, to tinker at the margins with the machinery of, of oversight in important ways. In the past, we've seen this with the creation of the little-known but much-loved, at least by me, uh, sensitive military operations oversight legislation, which came out of the House Armed Services Committee and became law a few years ago. That's a bill that created something that's quite similar to the uh, oversight mechanism that ensures that the intelligence committees are informed about covert action findings. In the same fashion now, the House and Senate Armed Services Committees get notified about uses of force outside of zones of active combat operations to simplify uh, to simplify greatly. Um, that was a big important step forward for ensuring uh, congressional oversight of some of the more edgy things that might take place, uh, especially in the special operations community in, in pursuit of counterterrorism missions, especially uses of force. Um, so what's happening now is a proposal to kind of take that model and make a cyber version of it, which I think is a really cool idea. Um, this bill, uh, which is a bipartisan bill, it's both uh, Chairman Thornberry in the Hask and Ranking Member Smith, both of them uh, fully backing this, would in effect require notification to SASC and Hask, the House and Senate Armed Services Committees, require notification of computer network operations conducted by our military or by a foreign government working in partnership with our military, which is sort of an interesting that's a little fuzzy, but anyways, you get the idea. Uh, when those operations are first, either an offensive operation, which requires some definition, which we need to get, um, or a defensive operation outside your own network to fend off an ongoing attack. So active defense or straight up offense. So that's the first condition. Second, it's not covert action. So not a Title 50 activity. So therefore, presumably a Title 10 activity. Uh, and thirdly, Uh, It's not training. Fourth, uh, that the operation is one that will have a disruptive effect outside the zone of active combat operations, which is very interesting. What's going on here? Simply put, the scenario that we're looking at must be something like the following. Let's say that DOD is going to do something to try to shut down or, or alter or disrupt the operations of some ISIS propaganda uh, website. And to do it, they're going to have to disrupt the function of a server that's actually in Bulgaria. 
That's the sort of situation that presumably for reasons of potential diplomatic and other repercussions, Congress wants to make sure it has better insight that it's happening. And this is a, a mechanism for ensuring that some kind of reporting goes on. And Steve, I think this sounds like good government. What do you uh, think? It sounds like very good government. Uh, Two it, thumbs up. Does it have any chance of passing? Oh, yeah, I think it does. So I think this will pass. Not, uh, not on its own, only if it's attached to the NDAA. I, I think it's probably meant to be attached and folded into the NDAA. So, so this is just for our listeners, right? I mean, so the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, which we've alluded to in different moments before, Bobby, it's one of the few must-pass bills in Congress these days, and therefore a lot of stuff gets sort of tacked onto it. That's right. And, and, and sometimes people try to tack on things that are not germane. And that's always an issue. This is not oh, that. No, no, yeah. this, right. Yeah. This is, no, this, I mean, yeah. it's germane. I just, right. It's, it's, it's always like December and people are we're trying to go home Absolutely. and everyone's pissed off. And it's like la- 11th hour, you know, negotiations. I think it's fair to say this, this is one of the few areas of legislation at the federal level where things are still working. And so there's a lot of pressure on it. Yeah. And, and kudos to the people. The, I know that the staff work that goes sure. into this is no, unbelievable. No. This is actually a, a rare moment of, of positive institutional yeah. responsibility. Which is not to say that anything that's put forward by yeah. Sask and Hask always gets in there. No, no. But I, I can't see anyone getting in the way of this. I think it's going to go well, through. Well, so I can see you know one entity, right? And that's the executive branch. I mean, I'll be really interested to see if there's any pushback from— I'd be very surprised. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Um, all right. Speaking of executive branch pushback, oh, so, good. so we, we've saved what is by far the juiciest topic of the week for last. We hoped in doing so that that would force <laughs> you to listen to our ramblings about the NBA and, and these other topics. And the NDAA. But for those who came here for the Comey Show, here's the Comey Show. Uh, I was going to say, we should, we should tell people that, uh, what, 40 minutes and 30 seconds in, we've gotten the Comey. Okay. Dive in. What, right, so, so what light, is there really to say? Let's do a lightning round, okay? okay. I've got, yeah, I've got four topics for the Comey lightning round. I've got, um, was, uh, uh, what did he leak slash did he break the law in leaking? Two, executive privilege. Three, Bob Mueller. Four, then what? That's my, that's my, that's my proposed approach. Okay, so I, I Leaks, Bobby, go. Leaks. Uh, I was on NPR the other day saying this. You sounded this was, very good. Oh, thank you. Fa- Face the radio. Un, uh, unlike the podcast, I actually put some effort into using my radio voice. Say, you, ha- sh- you have a radio voice? I, it's the one I used to announce the graduates at, at oh, indeed, we graduation. Oh, indeed. Steve Vladek. That's right. I got, I, got, I, got, <laughs> I got Twitter trolled this morning. I got to find what, what my favorite fan said about me. Because um, I was on. I about your a, voice? Yeah, I did a TV hit this morning, and apparently it was very mumbly. <laughs> That's right. That's all right. I so, think that it just goes to show low production value. We are we are a low production value program, and it shows you our authenticity. We mm. sound best on vinyl. Mr. Mr. Six Sex says, get the mush out of your mouth. And there's a gif of Donald Trump standing on a tank with things exploding in the background. <laughs> that is, I, I wish this was a, a television program so people, so people could, see could see it. See that. Well, you it's, could go look at my yeah. mentions. You know, right. will you, you get in our get on our Twitter account and forward that. That's I am not retweet. I am not doing Mr. Six Sex the honor of retweeting that. <laughs> All right, it's so just you, a bot. He won't care. So you're it on NPR on Friday. All right, and and the question was, is this criminal? And I know you've written a ton about this as well. I know we're on the same page. It is not criminal. Nope. Right? Not even so close. The candidates are, is it, is it somehow a violation of, of the Espionage Act? Can, can, can I, can I, before yeah. we get to the Espionage Act, yeah. there's all of this stuff out there about whether it's a leak 
or is it not a leak? I think that is such a waste of oxygen. Like, no law turns on whether something is or is not a, quote, leak. Leaks unquote. a political and policy so it, term. It's, it's not, not a legal a, term. There's right. no statute that, that that is triggered or not based on whether a particular disclosure of information is a leak. Yeah, I guess that's the necessary first place. The reason we want to talk about right. the conversion statute in the Espionage Act is because there is no anti-leaking or, or federal nope. criminal law against leaks. Nope. Now, um, now, plenty of people on the internet, right, don't understand the difference between administrative internal regulations, sure. which create lots of rules about retaining government documents after you've left office, right? And it's possible that if Comey really did literally print this thing out on FBI letterhead and bring it home, that he might have violated those rules. Bobby, those aren't criminal. No, no. So let's be clear that there's, there's regulation through what's made criminal. There's regulation through what might be in a contract, which might specify... Uh, you could be fired. Right. Maybe... You get fired, of course, he's out, so that doesn't matter. Maybe maybe your clearance is in jeopardy. Maybe. Um, maybe if you, he was making money off of this, if he if he wrote yeah. a book and put this in there and yeah. sold it, maybe, I, I can imagine, maybe, well, he might lose the, uh, the benefit of the And this the is money why money. Section 7 of the FBI Employment Agreement says, right, that if you violate this agreement, you may face criminal sanctions, even though lots of people are like, look, it says it in the FBI Employment Agreement. <laughs> right. He broke the law. And what they mean is you may face criminal sanction if your violation violates some other law. Right. All right. So you said, so, Bobby, the two big candidates, the Espionage right. Act. Yeah, in which, you know, this is not national defense information. Nope. It's not classified information. Even though it's about the president and Russia. Not, not, all... not everything about this is automatically national defense or classified. What um, about conversion? So conversion's interesting, right? Because the conversion statute is, is... This is 18 U.S.C. 641. And, of course, it wasn't created with this sort of scenario in mind. No. But it's written kind of broadly, Steve. So what is the feature that I that I think you have in mind, the, the necessary condition for a plausible conversion of government property Okay, so the, the idea is that the memos he created were themselves government property, and he converted them to his own use by giving them to Dan Richmond. But usually, right, I mean, usually the thing being converted has to have value to the government, right? right? Well, yeah, from a certain point of view, right, the layperson monetary says— Monetary value? Well, sure, uh, must have, uh, you know, been worth a pretty penny to them if he hadn't— hadn't but it's all—all I mean, right, so here's what the DOJ's own criminal resource manual happens to say about conversion prosecutions. It is inappropriate— to bring a prosecution under Section 641 when, one, the subject of the theft is intangible property, i.e. government information owned by or under the care, custody, or control of the United States. Check. Right? Two, the defendant obtained or used the property primarily for the purpose of disseminating it to the public. Mm -hmm. Check. And... Emphasis and. And, yeah, this is, you got to have all three conditions. Three, the property was not obtained as a result of wiretapping, Hmm. Interception of correspondence, criminal entry, or criminal or civil trespass. Wait, Check. So, so the, the wiretapping fire. So, so if there were tapes, if, if Trump has tapes and he puts it out there, well, that, so you know. <laughs> but but right. So if Comey, so it's actually interesting, right? If Comey had actually unlawfully wiretapped the conversation, maybe we'd be talking about conversion of government property. That's not this. Okay, so I think we should set aside. No crime. Now, so what's going on here, of course, is an attempt to turn the tables to put the prosecution on trial. He's a leaker. Will. Right, like, oh, he's the leaker. You say we're leaking, you're the leaker. Trying to taint him. This is all part of the larger effort to create a, a, a larger narrative of misconduct by the person who is, in fact, pointing to misconduct. So, uh, can I, can I yes. I, I, just, just, just so we don't lose the thread here, let's be clear on what's going on, right? 
there is now a direct conflict between what Jim Comey has testified about under oath and what Donald Trump has said publicly. One of them is lying. And the real question is, does anyone honestly believe that as between the career law enforcement official who was facing the penalty of perjury and the guy who thinks President Obama is a Muslim born in Kenya, that it's the former who's lying? It, it is hard to imagine, you know, people can feel or think what they want about Jim Comey, but the idea that he's the kind of person who, who might lie, let alone in a circumstance like this, let alone under oath, and would have gone to such lengths for this purpose, it, for those of us who know him, right. it's, I mean, it's I'll, not, I'll be the first not plausible. To say, listen, I will be the first to say, perhaps even more strongly, Bobby, than you would, that there are lots of instances where I think Jim Comey has exercised poor judgment. But there is a pretty important difference between poor judgment and not being truthful. Well, you're right. And, and agreed that we probably, you probably have a more negative view of some of his decisions than I do. I have a little more sympathy. But, the, you know, the arc of the life, yeah. the, I think we're beating yeah. a dead okay. horse here. All right. Uh, executive agreed. privilege. I, I want, this, I think, is also really stupid. So, the, so um, Mark Kasowitz, the president's, although he spelled it predecent in his, in his release, right, personal lawyer, um, argued that Comey's testimony also violated executive privilege. Um, Bobby, I almost fell out of my chair when I read that statement, um, but, you know, I didn't, fortunately. So, so explain, explain to our audience uh, why this almost certainly wasn't an executive privilege So scenario. three reasons. Okay, reason number one, executive privilege is a sword, not a shield, mm -hmm. right? It protects against the compelled and involuntary disclosure of testimony and or government records, right? In this case, you had a former government employee voluntarily testifying. That's not executive privilege. Two, even if you could argue that executive privilege still somehow applied, um, the subject of the conversations Comey was testifying about are things Donald Trump has spoken to publicly. So he has arguably waived any executive privilege he otherwise have. Let me, before you get to three, let me yeah. go back to one. On the sword, not a shield, I, I generally agree. But, you know, let's compare it to attorney-client privilege, mm -hmm. right? There's, there's The important question is who owns the privilege, right? right? The client owns the privilege. Um isn't it the case that the problem with trying to invoke executive privilege from a sword versus shield perspective is simply that there's no mechanism to enforce the president? Let's assume the conversation wasn't waived and it really was privileged in the first instance. And the only problem, you know, if Comey was still the director of the FBI or, or was a White House aide, the, the president would, I think, quite properly, if you assumed it was privileged, direct that person not to testify. Right. And if they if they then said, well, I, I want to testify, I want to reveal what you said. They get fired. They, they, get, they suffer a consequence, and they can, they can disobey. But it's, the problem's in the nature of the remedy. It's not that the privilege owner, who's the president, doesn't have any basis for saying, or the person speaking for the president, doesn't have a basis for saying that, you know, that's my privilege. You're not supposed to be the one who gets to decide to share that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that the analogy to attorney-client privilege holds up, right? Because attorney-client privilege is not about whether it's compulsory or voluntary, right? Like it's wrong for even, even if a lawyer, even if I voluntarily want to testify about what my client told me in confidence, I'm not allowed to. Right. But why isn't it the same here? At least if it's instead of being deliberative process, it's presidential communications as a species of executive privilege. Isn't it isn't it kind of the same deal where ultimately it's the president, that that the office itself, the president should own that communication and at least should be able to use whatever tools are available to try to prevent the employee from blowing it. Yeah, I guess that makes sense to me while they're an employee. Right. right? And, and so the problem here is just that look, you know, it's too you bad. You fired the guy. Yeah.
Right. And, there, and there, you don't have any mechanism. And yeah. Congress has not yet taken it upon itself to create a mechanism. That would well, and it would be pretty scary if it did. I mean, right, it would raise, yeah. Bobby, some interesting First Amendment questions about whether Congress by statute could codify some kind of privilege that would justify really a prior restraint yeah. right, of a former government employee's exercise of speech. I, I think such a statute would be very hard to draw in a manner that would be constitutional. What would, what would stop um, the White House counsel who gets disaffected and just quits one day and then goes out there and wants to blurt out all the otherwise privileged attorney-client conversations yeah. he or she had so with the So he'd be disbarred. Okay, right. So, right. The, so the penalty, the career penalty. Right. Um, he'd be a pariah. Right. So the, the, the shame penalty. Right. Um, and maybe. But could, could the White House, knowing the guy's scheduled a yeah. PBS NewsHour, uh, could they could they get a prior restraint? I don't think so. I mean, right. If you look, I mean, if you look at prior restraint doctrine, yeah, right, you're the supposed circ- to the remedies on the back end. Right, right. I mean, the circumstances in which the government's supposed to be able to get a prior restraint is where the publication of the information at issue would so unquestionably damage national right. security. The Repu- departure time for the ship. Right. The sh- tra- uh, uh, sh- troop tables and sailing times. Right. From near versus Minnesota, in 1932. I don't think embarrassing the president is up there on the list of justifications for yeah. a prior restraint. So I think that gets to the bottom. I think I've now reached the the comfort point as to why this won't work. There's there's not a vehicle right. for the for the, when you've got a scenario where the blurting out of the possibly privileged information is someone who's already left the government, you've lost your main leverage. And the theoretical vehicle that you could create would run into serious First Amendment problems. Exactly. And and in this particular fact pattern, it's very hard to see how the, the White House would win on that. Okay, so you pointed out that there's that, there's waiver, and then there's a third thing you were going to go into before I interrupted you. Oh, well, in that case. Um, so the third point, Bobby, was just really quickly, and even if there was a valid assertion of privilege, right? The Supreme Court in the Nixon tapes case in 1974 said the privilege is not absolute, as you said mm-hmm. earlier, and can be overcome especially where it's being used to withhold evidence that could be material to an ongoing criminal investigation. Oh, wait. So now if Bob Mueller wants Jim Kennedy to testify in front of a grand jury... Then it would be very. Then even if the executive privilege could apply, and again, I don't think it could. Yeah, we're back to the same problem. So at least Bob Mueller could overcome it. Now, speaking of Bob Mueller, so before we get to Bob Mueller, there's one last thing we should say about executive privilege, Ah. right? Which is the the other move that we're seeing apparently as we're speaking from sessions, and more clearly, Bobby, uh, so you don't feel like I'm 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 sandbagging you, right? Last week with Dan Coats and Admiral Rogers is. Government witnesses refusing to answer questions from Congress, but saying, I'm not invoking executive privilege. <laughs> I'm just not feeling like talking right now. Right. So that's weird. And the, that's going to put a ton of pressure on the, com- the congressional committees because the committees have authority to compel answers. Right, even in the face right. of a privilege claim. But will the will the will the chairpersons in this or case, will the Senator majorities, right. uh, take the actions necessary? So this is to do the, it. So, right. So so we have sort of a, a no privilege privilege showdown, right, looming. Where you know, listen, an executive branch witness should have to answer the question or assert a privilege. He shouldn't be able to not answer yeah. the question and not assert the privilege. And so that's the theoretically correct description. The practical answer is. It's a, it's a test it's up of to wills. Senator Burr. It's a test of politics. Yep. yep. Here we go again. All right. So speaking of test of politics, Bobby, my favorite story of the week, although it is only Tuesday, um, is the growing uh, clamor for President Trump to fire Bob Mueller because apparently he's, I don't know, what? Uh, 
a friend. Well, of course, the the narrative that's now out there and started circulating madly on some of the the the, the administration supporting Twitter feeds and bots and websites uh, is that uh, not only does is Mueller you know friends with Comey, but in fact they were tight as tight could be. That oh my gosh! He's, you know, it's a mentor mentee relationship. Turns in out, Washington, there were people who were friends with each other. Right. That a, that a leading federal prosecutor was 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 this coming from a White House that employs the daughter and son-in-law as senior staffers with security clearances? Well, they, they might say like, well, and if one of them is ever uh, special counsel and or implicated in a national security <laughs> investigation, exactly. Jared Kushner. Yeah, I, so that the the uh, hypocrisy argument is not going to cut any ice with them. The what did we say earlier about Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude. So uh, the issue is, is: is there any there there? And of course, I I think you and I both think no. There's no there there. What's really scary is it's well, already beginning. Wait, to, let's back up. Yeah. No there there meaning there is no evidence of the kind of good cause that a neutral observer absolutely. would think would justify the termination of the special counsel. No, absolutely. Look, they were they, the Trump administration apparently was considering trying to ask Mueller to come back and be FBI director again. He was going to be their guy. Um, yeah, but I mean, what? Newt Gingrich tweeted like two weeks ago that Bob Mueller is the best idea ever, best pick, super right. awesome guy. And then he's like, does anyone really believe that Bob Mueller isn't in the bag for the Democrats? So this is what's really upsetting is the, you know, they've already tarnished Jim Comey's reputation in, in such a in such an ugly way. And now now I think they're going to turn the same sort of uh, fire hose of, of narrative on Bob Mueller as a way to try to either intimidate him or else actually create the political conditions where he could be removed. So let's talk, so let's talk about the legal conditions for his removal. All right, that's yes. where things get really fun. Okay, so let's assume, as was floated as a trial balloon That the yesterday, president has decided. president's going to do it. Uh, what is the front door way to try to remove the special counsel? So the front door way, which is in the regulation, it's 28 CFR section 600.7 subsection D, is that the attorney general may remove the special counsel for good cause. Bobby, in this case, the attorney general is the acting attorney general for Russia, right, which is the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein. <laughs> get business cards printed to say that. Uh, right, because Jeff Sessions, is at recused. least for the moment, is recused on all things Russia. So Rod Rosenstein, as deputy attorney general, is the acting Attorney General, right, and therefore he's got the authority. He he has discretion to fire Mueller tomorrow if he wants. But to. let's be clear, right? I mean, Rosenstein testified this morning before the Senate Appropriations Committee and actually gave a rather rousing endorsement of Bob Mueller. And I can say it's not surprising. You've heard me say before that for all I was so sorry to see the role that Rosenstein played in uh, um, in that particular episode of removing Comey, right. um, I, I thought it was even more likely now that he'd be flying straight and true on these sorts of issues going forward, precisely in order to try to overcome the the, the hit his reputation took. Um, I continue to think he's a person of honor who's not going to go in for any sort of, you know, cooked up theory of Mueller somehow not being independent. And I suspect that if he gets an order to fire Mueller, I suspect Rosenstein will say, I'm not going to do that. You'll have to fire me. And, and and then we got a Saturday Night Massacre. Right. Okay. So the next person up, let's go to the order of succession. Well, there's one other possibility, Bobby, before we get to the order of succession. So there's also the prospect. This is only a regulation, right? So President Trump could also repeal the regulation. Now, ah. now there's debate among administrative law scholars who know this stuff a lot better than I do about whether there would have to be a formal notice and comment procedure before repealing this regulation or whether the president could simply do it by executive order and say, I hereby repeal, right, 28 CFR section 600. I bet I know which way the Trump White House would come down on that. 
and that would be messy, right? So, so, so that would be the, effective if, with, if there's a repeal with no replacement, just eliminating it. Does that just eliminate the office of special counsel? I think it would depend on which sections they repeal, right? So if they repeal the entire regulation, then I would think so. Yep. If they just repeal 600.7D, right, then presumably the attorney general or the president or anyone in that type of position would have the authority to terminate the special counsel. So, okay, let's let's distinguish these paths and walk through them. Uh, the most dramatic, the, let's call it the nuclear option. Right, is to, is to, is to unilaterally seek to repeal the, the regulation. Eliminate the entire existence of a special counsel as an office. Right, just destroy it. Right, okay, so that's like the that's like if Congress, you know, in, in Reconstruction or something. Abolished, is, yeah. you know, it's the abolish agency. That abolish the Department of Education. <laughs> is that the name, is that the one? Um, so they could <laughs> Abolish the special counsel altogether. And that, you know, um, is, there any, is there any reason setting aside the notice and comment timing and procedure so it might be angle? An APA, it might be an APA violation. Might be. But procedurally speaking, I don't think that something that exists as a creature of the executive branch's initial decision to create is beyond the president's power to get rid of. I think the president probably could do that. Now, politically, talk about dynamite. Well, so, so here we go, right? So, so, so to me, right? We have to be very clear about what the president can legally do and what's going to cause a huge political right, backlash. Right. Let's just talk about the law for a second because so, the political backlash is a given. So I don't know what the answer is on the APA because I think it depends on whether the 28 CFR 600 is like a legislative rule or right, a non-legislative right. rule. And that's just, you know, that's why I'm not an administrative law person. But, you know, the, the beauty for the Trump's Trump perspective is that it's is, not obvious. It then gets tangled up in litigation that will take forever to sort out, no matter how hard they try to fast track. That's it, right. Before Mueller would be able to operate again. That's and in right. In the meantime, he would not be able to operate. All right. So the more conventional option would be a, 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 a modern Saturday Night Massacre, where Trump orders Rosenstein without messing with the reg. Trump follows the reg. He orders right. Rosenstein to fire Mueller. Rosenstein refuses, and then is either fired himself or resigns. All right. So now we have to talk a bit about the the line of succession in yes. the Justice Department. There is a Justice Department uh, vacancies uh, uh, line of succession uh, statute. And per- executive order. And, and so let's start with the statute. The statute provides that it goes from the Attorney General to the Deputy Attorney the General. The DAG. To the Associate Attorney General. And there is indeed, Bobby, a Senate-confirmed Associate <laughs> Attorney General in the person of Rachel Brand. Who's terrific. And my prediction is that if, if it goes down in Saturday, Night massacre like fashion. She'll be the Ruckelshaus to Rosenstein's she, Richardson. She will. She too will go down with the ship. She's that may be the greatest line I've ever spoken. She <laughs> will be the Ruckelshaus to Rosenstein's Richardson. Oh my god! <laughs> I think that may have to be the title of this podcast. That's a long title for a podcast. So I really, do. I, have, I have a lot of faith that Rachel would would in that circumstance, uh, you know, do the honorable thing. The so then, who comes next? Ah, okay. So now we come to a small problem, which is that President Trump hasn't filled any of the other. I mean, there are nominees for a bunch of them, Bobby, but there's only one other Senate-confirmed person in the Justice Department right now, and that is the acting Assistant Attorney General for National Security, Dana Bente, who is the Senate-confirmed U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. So you would think that as the National Security Division head who has Senate you know, confirmation status, that the NSD position is what would make uh, Dana the next person in the line. But it's not the NSD position. Dana would still be the next person in the line because it actually turns on, according to the currently operative executive order on the line of succession beyond the AAG, it turns on whoever the president has designated in, you know, in sequence as the next person. And that person is... The U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. Indeed. So well, the, the one in the same. The what a head, coincidence. The acting head of NSD is also currently the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, and that is who, in the currently operative executive order, this would all fall to. Is fourth in line. 
Um, and after that, now, so if 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 we play this out to the to the you know Hollywood extreme, right? We go past Rachel Brand and Dana Vente. Bobby, there's nobody left because there's no one else. So the executive order on uh, DOJ succession provides that it's the Eastern District of North Carolina U.S. Attorney who's next, followed by the Northern District of Texas. Neither of those positions are currently filled. Oh. And under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act of 1998, if it's not Senate confirmed. Oh, boy. So um, we could have a fascinating problem where they run out of lawyers. That is, yeah. So in, in, like in all things in law, you always have to ask, okay, so in that case, the default controls, wherever, wherever the status quo is, what happens? So the only There's thing, no one who can remove, the only right? thing The only thing I can think of is that at that point, Sessions would have a good doctrine of necessity justification to, to unrecuse, for unrecusing. For I, I agree. Now, of course, the easy... It's also easy to imagine the Trump administration asserting an argument that we haven't touched on directly, which is the president may go strong unitary executive and say that um, by the power invested in me as the sole wielder of the executive power under yep. Article 2, yep. I am making the decision. Never mind all of this. My constitutional authority trumps right. it all. I mean, He's fired. Ooh, trumps it all. I like that. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. so let, let's be clear, right? This is all sort of legal tiddlywinks, right? Because the real problem, the Saturday Night Massacre was legal. Right. Yeah. It was the political backlash that it provoked that was such a big deal. Yep. And so I think, you know, the Mueller situation, I mean, apparently, you know, Rosenstein reaffirmed his support for Mueller this morning. Yep. Apparently Sessions has done so in the hearing this afternoon. Yeah, no, they, these people are not complete fools. They're they're surely going to realize that this they may have been able to fire Comey, but firing Mueller is not going to work, at least under current conditions. Now, how did they create the conditions for it to be politically palatable to fire Comey? They got uh, Rod it, Rosenstein to write a memo. It took a lot of criticisms, and it wasn't done overnight. There were a lot of criticisms planted here and there and advanced here and there. It's about building narratives that call somebody's credibility into question. So watch that space. I mean, if they're going to move on Mueller, it's going to be preceded by a lot of efforts to try to undermine him. We've seen a little bit of this already. Yeah, but I, I think in this case it's not going to stick. And I think Rod Rosenstein knew that when he picked Bob Mueller to be the special counsel. Yep. So I think that what we both think is going to happen is that he'll continue on but things can get pretty hairy once, Ooh. if and when it becomes clear that he's going to start uh, subpoenaing, uh, impaneling a grand jury and issuing subpoenas. Right, and you know, and there are people that matter to the president who are in some jeopardy here. You know, his son-in-law, in quite, particular. Quite. Um, so, Bobby, I, I, we're we're actually a bit over time, so maybe we'll hold the yep. frivolity and triviality for next week. For once, we'll just stay on the substance. And of course, we did start with a bunch of trivia anyway. Seriously, and no people, if if they made it this far, they want to get on with their lives. Uh, let's let's there's, release them. There's a whole world out there. They're hearing to watch. Seriously. So on that note, everybody, uh, stay safe out there and we'll talk to you next week. Adios.